in this parsha we say some goodbyes, because both Avraham and Sarah dies. After Sarah is buried, Yitzchak and Rivka get married. Okay, so this week's parsha is Parshat Chaye Sarah, and the parsha begins immediately following the story of the Akedat Yitzchak of the binding of Isaac, where uh, Avraham almost sacrificed his son of uh, his son Yitzchak, and yet, of course, Yitzchak was saved in the last moment. But the sages say that Sarah only heard half the story. Sarah only heard that that, that uh, his son, that, that that their son Yitzchak, was killed by none other than than Avraham, and she was so distraught from hearing the news that she died from shock. And um, what what's fascinating here is that uh, you know Avraham, one of Avraham's tests was of course the binding of Isaac. But some commentaries say the true test of the binding of Isaac was not necessarily, you know, killing or, or almost nearly killing uh, his own son, but rather it was the actual aftermath of Sarah dying because of the terrible news. And I think, you know, this story kind of goes to show you that we really don't know what's good and what's bad in life. That it seems like Avraham after he sacrificed, after he, he was spared from sacrificing uh, his son Yitzchak, he would have been tremendously happy. He would have thought, whoosh, phew, you know, I uh, avoided possibly a, a bad one there of having to sacrifice my son. But we learn later on that what actually happened was, um, w- w- was that Sarah, his wife, died. And uh, meaning that, you know, you might have thought if had you just read last week's last week's uh, parsha that everything was good in the world that uh, that Avraham you know was spared from killing his son and and it was all it was all just a nice test. But the reality is there was some there was some aftermath, being that Sarah died from from shock. That uh, and the point being that sometimes you know good things happen to us, and we don't always think of the aftermath. Or sometimes bad things happen to us and we don't think of the good things that come that uh, can come out of it and basically being that we're not you know all knowing and a lot of things happen to us and we don't have a clear image of exactly whether it's good or bad until much much later if at all so uh moving on so Abraham he first eulogizes um Sarah and then only after that the parsha says does he cry over Sarah and it seems like this is sort of backwards. It seems like first, the first reaction a person should have is that they cry about hearing sad news. And only once they cry a little bit are they able to, to speak, are they able to eulogize. But I think that, um, you know, that's kind of a simplistic view of human emotions. Very often, human emotions, they only come about because of something um, more substantive. That yes, Sarah died, but... Avraham wasn't really able to cry about her um, until he was until he he eulogized her until he was able to to write about her until he was able to really process it and sometimes you know with emotions that they they sometimes take time to truly come out in their full in their full form and uh, if you you know for for Avraham that in order to truly cry over the loss of his wife he first had to sort of take some steps. He first had to, to write out a eulogy 
for his wife, and then only, then and only then was uh, he able to truly cry for her. Moving on, so after Avraham cries over uh, his wife and, and mourns and mourns the loss of Sarah, then he works to try to find a burial spot, a burial location to bury Sarah. And he approaches the people in his town, and he calls himself Agar Vitoshev, meaning he's a foreigner and a resident. So these seem contradictory. Which one is he? Is he Agar? Is he is he a Ger? Is he a, is he a foreigner, or is he a Toshev? Is he a, a resident? Um, and the the answer being is that I heard a, a Jew has to be both. You know, a Jewish person for many. Many thousands of years. Uh, it's not so true, you know, in the last seventy or so years. But the for for a lot of years, you know, the Jewish people never had a nation of their own, and um, basically they were always foreigners uh, in 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 a in a in a foreign land. Yet at the same time, they were residents of that of that place. And um, I to to make the analogy, you know, during Sukkot. Um, you have the the Arba Minim, the, the Lulav and the Etrog, and the Etrog is said to have had, the, the Etrog has both smell and taste, and the Kabbalists say that what that means is that smell and taste represent, the Etrog has both uh, learning Torah, and in addition to that has Masim Tovim, has, has good deeds. Um, so basically the Etrog is like the complete Jew, so to speak. But and all the all the other the other three minim um, are not so complete. Either they lack smell, or they lack taste, or they don't have either one. And what's fascinating is this sort of complete Jew, so to speak, the etrog. All the other three minim in the in the etrog are um, always together. They're always sort of tied together. But the etrog, it only comes together when you're shaking uh, the lulav and etrog. But the rest of the time, the etrog's in its in a separate container. And so too for a Jewish person that they are a ger v'toshav because, like the etrog, the etrog comes together in society when it should, but at the same time it has a certain level of separation, and the etrog is able to sort of strike this balance. And so too, as an as an analogy, Avraham was able to strike this balance uh, in society of being somewhat of a foreigner, um, and and being able to sort of separate himself and at the same time being able to contribute uh, to society. So um, moving on in the Parsha, so it's uh, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs' uh, Yerzeit was this, is this week, and Rabbi Jonathan, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs has a really tremendous lesson of, about this week's Parsha, being that Avraham uh, was, was, has, was promised by God many, many times throughout the, the Parshiot so far, that Avraham would inherit would uh, inherit the land of Israel. And the second thing is that he would have many, many descendants. Yet, you look at Avraham's life right now. Sarah's dead. Um, he has no land to speak of. Uh, and and his, his son, Yitzchak, uh, is, is still not married and is uh, about 40 years old. So it doesn't seem like he's going to have really any of these promises are going to come true. It doesn't seem like he's going to have any land. And it also doesn't seem like he's going to have any descendants. And what does, and Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says, what does Avraham do about this? 
Avraham, instead of saying, you know what, God promised me that I would have such tremendous success, you know, that I'm going to have the land of Israel and I'm going to have descendants, I'm just going to sit back, relax, and wait until that happens. That's not, that's not uh, Avraham's approach. Rather, Avraham is willing to pay an exorbitant price to get this little section of land, this cave, to bury Sarah in. Basically, he's, he's willing, you know, God told him that he would get the land of Israel and have many descendants, but he didn't take a passive role. Rather, he took an extremely active role. He bargained uh, at an extremely high price just to get a little piece of land uh, from Israel. In addition to that, the many descendants part, he didn't simply sit back and say, well, eventually my son will get married as, you know, somehow. Rather, he took an active role. He sent Eliezer to go find a wife uh, at an extreme cost. You know, the, he gave a very large uh, dowry um, to, to Rivka's family. So Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says we can learn from Avraham that, that, you know, maybe sometimes it seems like we're destined for a certain path. You know, Avraham was destined to have the land of Israel and was destined to have many descendants. But the reality is sometimes uh, we, we have to put in our own work that even though God might sort of tell us that might happen, it's not a free ride. Rather, it's a partnership with God. And, um, and you know, so too for us, sort of that, that famous quote that uh, when, you know, if, if opportunity isn't knocking, build a door. That's kind of what Abraham did here, that, you know, he, he was promised the land of Israel. So what did he do? He took an active role and bought the land of Israel. He was promised descendants. What did he do? He was willing to give a very large dowry uh, to Rivka's family. And it goes to, to show you that, uh, that really taking initiative, we shouldn't just expect things to come. Rather, we have to put in our hishtavos. We have to put in our, our efforts. Moving on, so um, the Parsha says that Avraham uh, trusted Eliezer with kol asherlo, with, with everything that's his. So basically, Avraham trusted Eliezer with all of his properties, all of his financial uh, and, and, and land and, and crops and livestock, etc. Any assets uh, were trusted to Eliezer. Yet, um, yet and, and surprisingly, Avraham doesn't trust him that he would find, a, that, that, that he would find a, a wife for Yitzchak uh, in, in Haran. And therefore, Avraham makes him take an oath that he would only go to Haran to, to find a, a wife. And um, it, the lesson being here is that Avraham, his priorities, yeah, it's true, you know, his, his uh, material well-being was important, but that he trusted Eliezer with completely. But when it came to spiritual things, when it came to finding the next, um, the next matriarch of the Jewish people, that was something that he wasn't willing to take a back seat to. That was something that he had to make sure that uh, that Eliezer was completely devoted to. Moving on, so Rav Hirsch asks a question that you know that uh, Avraham says that Eliezer is only allowed to go to find a wife in his in in Avraham's hometown of Haran, and not he's not allowed to find a wife in his current town of, of Canaan. And Rav Hirsch comments here that, wait a minute, both the land of Canaan and the land of Haran, they, they both worship idols. So why does it matter that Haran is the place that the next matriarch is, is going to be found 
you know, they're both idol worshippers. So what's the difference? And Rav Hirsch says that worshiping idols, that's really only an activity. Yet midot, you know, the character traits, fundamental values, that's something that's unchangeable. And and uh, Avraham knew that the land of Haran had a better a better value system, had some you know the, those internal unchangeable characteristics about someone, that that was you know that those were more positive in Haran. And even though they both, even though Haran also worshipped idols, the worshiping idols part that could change. That was changeable, but the midot, the who you were, uh, that was something that was unchangeable, and that's why Haran was was chosen was chosen over the land of Canaan. So Eleazar devises a test to find the next matriarch, and he he he's going to ask for water, and uh, and whoever the next matriarch will will be. She will not only, you know, give water to Eliezer, but she also will water his camels without even having to be asked. And what's fascinating about this test is this test is not looking for, you know, wealth. This test is not inquiring about wealth. It's not inquiring about the the faith, you know, the the amuna, the the, the belief in God of, of this woman. It's not inquiring about the miracles that the woman could perform. It's not looking at the how beautiful the woman was. None of those things are as important as what kind of person she was, whether she was a kind person, whether she had that the mita of chesed, whether she was whether she um, was a caring and and kind person, and that was even more important than someone that believed in God. You know, you would think. For the for a matriarch of a religion, uh, a requisite would be that they believed in God. That but that was not the case. Rather, the requisite was that she was a good person, and all those other things, so to speak, would fall into place. But her being a good person that was paramount um, in and and uh, as a test. Another thing is, you know, uh, the Torah explicitly says you're not able to make a test based on like um, sort of. Uh, the signs, you know, the, the the natural signs of the earth. You can't say if the sun shines tomorrow, I'm going to quit my job. You know, that's not a uh, a legitimate way to live your life. So here, it seems like Eliezer is making this kind of test that he's saying, if you know she comes and waters my camels, that's the way that I'll determine the next matriarch. But the answer is no. The answer is this is actually a test of her character. This is something that. The next, the next matriarch, it's not merely the sun rising. Rather, it's something that the next matriarch will actually play a part in. Is actually, she's actually going to, to water the camels, and that shows her character traits. Moving on to a nice lesson from the Orachaim. So when Rivka finally comes and succeeds on Eliezer's test, Rivka does a lot of small things that, are, um, that, that, that go a long way. So for example, the Orachaim notes... That Rivka, he gives she, she gives Eliezer uh, water, but then she doesn't immediately tell Eliezer that she's also going to water her camel, water his camels. Rather, Rivka first gives the water to Eliezer, and once he's done drinking, then she waters the camels. And or the Orachaim says, had Eliezer known that she would have watered the camels, he would have kind of drank quickly and would have rushed his own comfort. But Rivka, according to the Orachaim, was cognizant, cognizant enough to know 
that she should only, um, you know, that, uh, that, that she would give Eliezer a drink without him worrying about his animals. And then only once he was satisfied, uh, then she would mention his camels. Um, so another interesting little tidbit here is really sort of a, uh, a COVID lesson, if you will, a pandemic kind of uh, uh, disease lesson from one of the sage's comments that Rivka, after this foreigner, mainly uh, after Eleazar, drank from Rivka's bottle, it could have been that the water had some type of germs, had uh, a disease, and from, you know, that, that was passed from... Uh, that, that was passed from Eliezer, and that water shouldn't have been drank by anyone in their family because Eliezer kind of had put his germs in it. So instead of spilling out the water, which might seem wasteful, rather she finds kind of a workaround uh, whereby Rivka will give the water um, to, to, the, to the camels instead. That way, that way not only does um, does she not waste any water because it might have germs, but she's also able to use it productively uh, to, to give to the camels. Another small detail that Rivka does, it says that um, Rivka waters all the camels all at once, meaning that instead of giving sort of a, a bucket of water to each camel individually, and then one camel would be done before the other, rather sort of this that the water was given in a large trough so all of them can drink at the same time. And, you know, I think what's a particularly uh, an important note is that really the welfare of animals seems to be an extremely um, important characteristic, a defining characteristic of, of Jewish uh, thought, of, of, of Jewish kindness. And basically the idea being that when a person's kind with animals, it's not so far off from being kind with people. So if people are, if, if a person is kind even with animals, then certainly they'll be they'll be kind. Hopefully, uh, with with people. Now moving on. So um, Eliezer he refuses to eat until once he actually gets to Rivka's house. Uh, Eliezer refuses to eat until Rivka agrees uh, to come with him. And what's fascinating is you know. There's many stories uh, throughout Judaism that food is sort of held off until the mission is complete. You can think about, you know, on Yom Kippur, you don't eat because you want to hold off food until um, you you gain complete kapara, until you gain complete uh, forgiveness. And similarly for Tanya and Esther, for the fast of Esther, you know, the Esther and the Megillah, fasted because she was so worried about the, the decree against the Jewish people that she sort of held off food until um, that, that decree was, was uh, nullified. And so to here we see Eliezer was willing to sort of hold off food, hold off his own comfort until his mission was complete. So moving on to a nice lesson from the Kotzker Rebbe. The Kotzker Rebbe notes that in the retelling of the story, Eliezer retells the story to the people, to, to, to Rivka's family. And the word that, um, the, that, that, that Eliezer uses here is ulai, meaning maybe, but it's spelled the same way as Ali. And this is talking about maybe she wouldn't, maybe, maybe this woman, um, whoever, whoever it is, maybe this woman wouldn't want to follow me back to the land of Canaan. That was, um, 
that was uh, the, a possible complaint that that Eliezer had to Avraham, that Avraham uh, was potentially worried that 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 that, uh, that Eliezer was worried that he wouldn't find anyone that would be willing to to come back to Canaan with him. Yet um, the Kutzker Rebbe notes that the fact that Ulai, which means maybe, and Ali, which means to me, indicates that really there was something subconscious going on in the background um, when, Ele- when Eliezer asks his question, that maybe she won't follow me back. That even though this was seemingly a legitimate question, in reality, the Kutzka Rebbe says, it's actually not coming from a sincere place. It's coming from a place of, meaning to me, meaning that perhaps... Um, uh, Yitzchak should marry my own daughter, meaning Yitzchak should marry uh, Eliezer's daughter. Not that, and 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 Eliezer kind of realizes that subconsciously the reason, the whole reason that he asked, maybe she won't follow me, is because subconsciously he had an ulterior motive of wanting uh, Yitzchak to to marry in his own family, and it goes to show you that sometimes when we ask a question, we have to first think about. Is this sort of shame shemayim? Is it said for the right purpose? And if it's not said for the right purpose, even if it seems like a legitimate question, maybe we should, you know, rethink whether we should ask it or not. Moving on to a couple of my last points here. So a tremendous insight from the Nitziv brought by um, Rabbi Katz uh, from Detroit. So the Nitziv says that when when um, when First of all, Rivka's brother and Rivka's mother recommend that that Rivka should stay for a year to prepare, uh, to to prepare for um, to to basically to prepare for marriage, and Rivka uh, they they end up not doing that. They end up going immediately, and Rivka he she sees Yitzchak um, immediately. She she sees she sees you know her her future husband. Uh, there in the field, and 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 Rivka was so shocked, was so sort of in awe of Yitzchak, that she covered her face from embarrassment, uh, or from modesty. She she covered her face immediately when she sees Yitzchak, and the Nitziv, he he notes here, that this was a major major mistake from Rivka, that Rivka uh, basically. It's true. She was not prepared. You know, she she ended up not preparing for that year for marriage, and she wasn't prepared to 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 be married to Yitzchak. She she wasn't ready for it, and as a result, she sort of hides away. She's embarrassed and she's almost scared from Yitzchak's uh, aura, if you will, and that fear makes her cover her face. But the Nitziv notes that this sort of this first impression that Rivka was afraid of Yitzchak plays has major ramifications for the rest of the relationship between Rivcha and Yitzchak. That eventually, you know, uh, the, the famous story where their children, the twins of, of, uh, of uh, Yaakov and Esav, that Rivka would tell Yaakov to trick her, her husband and Yaakov would dress up like he was Esav and then eventually would would get the would kind of steal the birthright from Esav, even though Esav was firstborn. Yet it seems like according to the Tziv, 
Rivka should have been much more direct. The line, the, the lines of communication should have been much more clear, and Rivka just would have went to her husband Yitzchak and said explicitly, "You know what? You should actually give the the firstborn blessing over to uh, uh over to your son Yaakov instead of Esav." And had Rivka kind of had the chutzpah, had the um had the gall to go and tell Yitzchak, um, sort of give her give him a piece of her mind that that really the the blessing should go to Yaakov then perhaps the whole storyline of Yaakov then of running away from Esav because Esav uh felt like he was cheated you know and then and then eventually he ended up with with Lavan the whole sort of series of events that happens is perhaps because this relationship between Rivka and Yitzchak was sort of one of fear, was one where there wasn't constant communication, was one where uh, where immediately upon seeing Yitzchak, Rivka covers her face from embarrassment, and that first impression kind of sculpted um, the, the relationship to come, which was a relationship that didn't have enough uh, healthy communication in it. Moving on, so Avraham to the last point. So Avraham remarries, and he marries Ketorah. And the commentaries say this woman, Ketorah, is actually Hagar, uh, you know, meeting, being the first woman that uh, he married. And the word Ketorah comes from the word Ketoret, like, uh, like a, the, the, the incense offering. And what's particularly fascinating about the incense offering, the Ketoret offering, is that the Ketoret was, it had one spice, it had one um, scent that was putrid, that smelled absolutely horrible. And yet, when that one putrid smell was mixed with all these other smells, it actually, the, the aroma together smelled amazing. And the lesson being here is that Hagar, supposedly, uh, the commentaries say that Yishmael actually, he did teshuva. He um, returned from his sinful ways. And in the end, he ended up playing a, a pivotal role in burying his father, Avraham. So that goes to show you that Yishmael actually did teshuva. He, he came back from being a bad person and was eventually back in the fold of the family. And the lesson being here is that Hagar, his mother, Yishmael's mother, Hagar, um, she, she has her name changed to Ketorah because she was able to sort of put Yishmael, who was sort of a putrid smell, so to speak, who was a bad character, and was able to put him sort of in the right situation so that he thrived. So it goes to show you that even a bad character, even a bad-smelling thing, if it's put in the right environment, it can actually make a tremendous smell. And that's sort of what what Ketorah did, that Ketorah, that, that Hagar was able to put Yishmael sort of in the right situation and was able to make him uh, a much better person because of it. So moving to recap my points. So first, I talked about how the Parsha begins really as a continuation of last week's Parsha, right after the Binding of Isaac, where um, Yitzchak was spared from the, from, uh, the, the, the near death of um from from the near murder of uh but by by uh his father Avram and as a result here um the Chachamim teach that the reason that Sarah died is because she only heard half the story she only heard that Yitzchak was going to be killed by Abraham but she didn't know that Abraham actually spared Yitzchak and she was so shocked that she died and i said the lesson here being 
that um, it's not always clear to us what's good and what's bad. It seems like after Avraham was able to not have to kill his son, it seemed like that was a good thing. But in reality, if you zoom out a little bit, it actually led to the death of of his beloved wife. And the lesson here being that uh, Yitzchak was so that 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 the um, that the threat to 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 Avraham, the, the threat to Yitzchak, uh, the Akedah Yitzchak, the binding of of Isaac, was such a threat that it it caused Sarah's death. And sometimes we think something's good. We think that you know Avraham being able to save Yitzchak was good, but what actually happened is that Sarah died. Moving to the next point was that Avraham first eulogizes Sarah before crying over her. The lesson here being that sometimes we have to actually write out our emotions before those emotions come. Sometimes we have to eulogize before we're able to truly uh, to truly cry. Moving on, so Avraham calls himself a gar v'toshav, ger v'toshav, meaning he's a foreigner and he's a resident. So how are those two things common? How are those two things together? You're either a foreigner or you're a resident. And the lesson here being is that we're supposed to be both. We're supposed to be like that etrog that has taste and smell, the, the, that has Torah and Maisim Tovim, yet that etrog is separate most of the time and only gets together with the other three minim, uh, at, at, you know, only when they're sh- being shook together, but the rest of the time it separates itself. And so too, for Avraham, he was able to be a resident he was able to, you know, involve himself in politics or whatever it was. He was able to involve himself in, in, uh, in life, in, in, in livelihood, in where he was living. Yet he was also a foreigner. He was also able to separate himself when needed. So the next lesson is from Rabbi Jonathan Sachs, whose year site is this year is this week. And um, Rabbi Jonathan Sachs mentions here that Abraham is many many times told by God that he would uh, inherit a tremendous amount of land, he would inherit the land of Israel, and he would have a tremendous amount of descendants. Yet you're looking at Abraham's life at this point, and he really only has Yitzchak as his son outside of Yishmael, and he only has Yitzchak, and, um, and Yitzchak isn't married. And in addition to that, he has no land to speak of. So what Rabbi Jonathan Sachs said is, sometimes, you know, we have to take matters into our own hands. We have to do our proper hishtadlis. We have to do our proper uh, work. And Avraham, he was, you know, not relying on miracles. Rather, he paid an exorbitant amount of money for the cave to buy a little portion of land to bury his wife, Sarah. In addition to that, he was willing to give a huge dowry, a tremendously expensive dowry to Rivka's family, just to ensure that he would have uh, many descendants. But it goes to show you that Rabbi Jonathan Sachs says that we shouldn't just rely, oh, God said I'm going to have, you know, the land of Israel. God said I'm going to have many descendants. That's all I need, and I'm just going to sit back and and kick my feet up. Rather, Avraham, he worked. He was promised the land of Israel. He was promised many descendants. But that doesn't mean he just was going to relax. Rather, he was going to take the initiative uh, to buy at even at an extreme cost to buy a little portion of Israel, and again, even an extreme cost to find a wife uh, for his, for his, uh, for his son Yitzchak. Moving on, so Avraham trusts Eliezer with all of with Kol uh, Kol Asher Lo with with everything that's his. Yet Avraham doesn't trust him to find the next matriarch. The lesson here being that 
you know, he had, Avram kind of had his priorities in order, that, uh, that his, his financial priorities were less important to him than finding the next matriarch of the Jewish people. So Rav Hirsch comments here that both Canaan and Haran, they both worshipped idols. So why does it matter that Eliezer only finds a wife uh, from Haran? And Rav Hirsch says that Midot, that sort of those fundamental character traits, those are unchanging. That worshipping idols, that opinion can change over time. But Midot, who you are as a person, that's unchangeable. Um, a similar point, so Eliezer makes, devises this test that he would ask for water for himself, and whoever offers him water, and in addition to that offers him, offers his camel's water, that would be the next wife of, uh, for, for Yitzchak. And, um, and, and what's tremendous about this test is that it's not looking for a woman based on her wealth or her, her faith in God or miracles or her beauty. Rather, would, the, the key character trait that Eliezer is looking for is her kindness. And um, basically, the lesson here being is that kindness, um, that, that who you are as a person is more important than anything else. You know, you might think that faith in God is the most important aspect of a matriarch of the, of the Jewish people, but that's not true. Rather, the key character trait is, are you, are you a kind person? And all those other things will sort of fall in line. Moving on, so the Orachayim says that Rivka, he only gives, um, he, that, that, that she, she gives water to Eliezer, and at first she doesn't even mention that she's going to water the camels. And the lesson here being is that had Rivka told Eliezer that she was also going to water her water his camels right away, then Eliezer kind of would have been rushed to drink quickly. But just to be sure that she wasn't that uh, that Eliezer wasn't rushed, um, uh, Rivka made made sure that uh, she first gave the water to Eliezer, and only after that did she mention the camels. Another few small points that that Rivka was careful about. One I mentioned was sort of. She was afraid that the um, water that he drank from was infested now with germs from another city. So instead of just pouring the water out and wasting it, he was able to give it to the camels. Additionally, uh, uh, Rivka watered all the animals together in a trough to be sure that one camel didn't get water uh, over the other one. And the lesson here being in all of these things, that caring for animals, that kind of, if you're truly care for animals, that shows that shows that the person also will care for people. Moving on, so um, Eliezer refuses to eat until um, Rivka agrees to come with him. And I said that food is generally in Judaism, um, you know, sometimes pushed off until the mission is complete. Like I said on on Yom Kippur, we don't eat because we have this mission that. Um, we should have kapara, that we should have atonement. And I also spoke about how the Tanit Esther, the fast of Esther, that Esther was willing to, to fast, to not eat, uh, until that horrible decree was taken away against the Jewish people. Moving on, so a lesson from the Kutzker Rebbe. He says that um, when retelling the story, uh, that, that Eliezer, Eliezer, when he asks you know, what happens when he asks, when, when Eliezer asks um, Avraham, what would happen if this woman that I find won't follow me back to the land of Canaan? And um, he says, perhaps she won't follow me. So there's, uh, the, the, the word used is ulai, perhaps uh, she wouldn't follow me. And 
the what's interesting is these letters could also be could also be spelled uh to mean ali and the lesson here being ali means to me and the lesson here being that subconsciously um uh eliezer kind of wanted eliezer wanted uh his own daughter to marry yitzhak and he realized that even though it was a legitimate question to ask wait a minute, what happens if you won't follow me? Even though it seemed like a legitimate question on its face, it was rooted in something that was corrupt. It was rooted in um, a, a belief that really he wanted his own daughter to marry Yitzchak and hopefully, you know, to not have found uh, someone in, in uh, Haran. So it goes to show you that even if it seems like a legitimate question, we should sometimes double, we should doubt ourselves um, if, if we think that it might be said, if it might be asked with bad intention. Moving on, so the Nitziv, uh, in the name, in, in from, from, uh, which I heard from Rabbi Katz, the Nitziv says that Rivka's brother and mother recommended that they, that, uh, Rivka takes a year to prepare for the marriage, but that doesn't end up happening, and Rivka perhaps sees Yitzchak too early, and Rivka's afraid of Yitzchak, and she covers her face. And I said that this fear uh, completely shapes, it sculpts the way it, that, um, it, 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 it shapes the way that their relationship moves from now on, that, uh, that this relationship between Rivka and Yitzchak is kind of out of fear, and there's not enough communication. And the key example of that is where Rivka, instead of just addressing Yitzchak and telling Yitzchak that the, the blessing should go to Yaakov instead of Esav, rather Rivka sort of is too afraid of the confrontation and instead goes to Yaakov and tells him to trick to trick his father Yitzchak into thinking that he's Esav, and in that way to steal the blessing instead of just saying it in more of a dignified way. And the lesson here being is that Rivka was afraid at the beginning. The first impression of Yitzchak was out of fear. And that fear, that lack of communication, sculpted and shaped the relationship from then on, being that, you know, it's it's how important it is to have a, a relationship that you can, or that you're not afraid in, that you're willing to have some chutzpah, that you're willing to uh, talk to either side um, and, and have honest conversations with each other as opposed to sort of being afraid. And because of that fear, of course, it led to the whole domino of effects that happened after Yaakov cheated Esav uh, out of his blessing. Moving to the last point, Abraham marries Ketorah, and the Chachamim say, the sages say that Ketorah is actually Hagar. And Hagar, of course, is the mother of Yishmael. And um, Ketorah could kind of mean Ketoret, like the incense offering. And the incense offering was famous for having one smell that smelled absolutely terrible, pungent smell. And so too Yishmael was like that pungent smell. Yet the Ketoret had a wonderful one when they were all combined together, all the smells together was a wonderful aroma. And so too Yishmael is said to have, be a, a, a Baal is said to have uh, sort of returned uh, have to to have have repented, and uh, basically that was that was Hagar's skill. Hagar was able to put Yishmael, who was like this pungent smell, and put him in the correct mixture. Was put him in the correct environment, and anybody, regardless of how pungent they are, if they're put in the right environment, they will have the uh, the ability uh, to succeed. So with that, I'll read my poem. 
in this Parsha, we see some goodbyes because both Avraham and Sarah dies. After Sarah is buried, Yitzchak and Rivka get married. And with that, l'chaim, l'chaim.